This is the premise of discipleship. Verse 25 is a premise of discipleship. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to give everything. You have to be willing to give everything. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry. And I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. John chapter 12 this morning. Have you ever invited, been invited to someone's home? and were surprised with tasks that they had for you. You went to their house and maybe you just thought you were going to hang out, you're going to have dinner and and maybe there was a couch wrapped in their living room. And a moving truck in the garage in the parking lot driveway. And you thought, "Oh." And you got put to work. Now Many of you have been put to work at my house, but I always try to give you a heads up. Whether you're painting or serving us in some way, you're not ambushed by it. But can you imagine being surprised with service? And, and on the whole, I think everyone in our congregation would, would be just ready and willing. They were able to help be surprised by work. And what if I invited you to my home and as I just mentioned I was honest and I said hey you know uh, there's some things in life not many but there's a few things I'm good at but I'm not good at painting and we need our house painted <laughs> some of you this was reality last June at least you knew and so you came and you sacrificed your time and you were willing to do that what if what if I came to you and I said, look, I know you're scared of heights. I am too. And I need someone to help me conquer my fear of heights. It's not because I'm short that I'm scared of heights. It's just, I know a few inches would make the height not seem as tall, but I, I don't like heights. Um, and so I said, hey, we're going we're gonna to go skydiving together. How many of you would be up for that? Y'all are weird, brother. crazy people. What if I said, um, we're going to go to church. And there's, a, there's a real chance we'll get put in jail. I mean, it's, it's possible. There's a church in Canada right now, Coatesville Bible Church. Front doors barbed wired, and the pastor was spent uh, almost a full month in prison because he ministered during COVID, despite COVID policies. What if, what if you were following Jesus, and Jesus said, "All right, let's go back to Bethany, or let's go back to Jerusalem." Where Bethany? Let's go back to Jerusalem. And you, like Thomas, said, "Well, let's go and die with him." 
Situations become more intense when we talk greater cost. And one of the things I think people may not recognize when we talk about gospel conversion, when we talk about true Christian reality, true, true Christian faith, is the way that it can be presented, and, and I don't think it's a bad thing, I think we should present the glories and the, the goodness of the gospel. I absolutely think we should do that. But I think if we do that imbalance, we forget the other things that Jesus says about what it means to be converted. The other things that he says about what it means to follow him. So we're in John chapter 12. Let's start together in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is one of the many passages in the New Testament where Jesus talks about what it means to follow him. And inherent to the idea of following Jesus is the idea of cost. Giving something up. You heard from our, or, our, our call to worship text earlier, a young man who was a righteous young man, he'd kept the law. He had many earthly possessions, and Jesus says this is what you lack. You lack the ability to give of yourself. And he went away grieved because he wasn't willing to give up his possessions. This morning I want to show you from this passage, this is a clunky idea I'm about to give you, but I will explain it. I'll do my best to clarify it. That Christ's death gave us eternal life so that we may die to give him our everyday life. Christ's death gave us eternal life so that we may die to give him our everyday life. Let's not forget where we are in the book. Jesus has returned to Jerusalem. This is the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his death on the cross. And so this is, these are the, the immediate days before the events of the, the climactic events of the Passion Week. We just came off, the, uh, uh, I guess it was about three weeks ago, we, we, preached, we, we studied together. I preached on the triumphal entries starting at verse 12 down to verse 19. And we talked about the idea of kingship, how the kingship, uh, the king of Christ, the, the, the king Jesus, the lamb Jesus is returning. He's, he's entering that he may give his life for those who believe. And so this is a, an important passage. It's a fascinating passage, but it's also a passage where Jesus literally gives us a prediction of the next few days, what's about to happen. He's going to give us a very subtle reference to his own death and his own resurrection. And so let's just begin working through the passage together. And starting in verse 20, I want you to see that Jesus delivers all of the believing. Jesus delivers all the believing. And we get this idea from these, this group of people who come to acknowledge Jesus. <clears throat> 
excuse me, verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So we have some Gentiles who begin a conversation. And you understand anyone who's not a Jew in the, in the scriptures and in reality is, is a Gentile. So, so we have some Greeks, we have some Gentiles who approach Jesus and they, uh, they, have, they want to talk to him. But, but that's not even, uh, approaching Jesus to talk to him is not even primarily the reason that they're there. Do you see the reason that they're there? So, so, so some Greeks, some Gentiles come, up, come into Jerusalem. Why? To worship at the feast. So we presume that these, Jew, that these Greeks were worshipers of Yahweh. Now this was, this was a, something that was, re, that was not common, but not unheard of in, in the New Testament. People, Gentiles who had come to believe in Yahweh, who accepted the Judaic form of worship. So they would, they would observe the feast, they would worship as the Jews did, and uh, because they were believers in God. And so I actually think we're probably dealing with people who their faith was, was relatively sincere, which is why they wanted to approach Jesus, why they wanted to have a conversation with Jesus. But this is fascinating within the book of John, because John was, is, is primarily addressing uh, Jews' rejection of Jesus in his book. We're often supposed to know that it's the Jews who reject Jesus. He tells us, tells us at the beginning he would come to his own, his own would not receive him. And of course, we see it throughout the rest of the book. There are some who believe, but on the whole, they just approach Jesus as a, a sideshow who can do miracles, so they're entertained by him. Or they follow the faulty example and teachings of the religious leaders who are doing everything they can to discredit Jesus. Remember, even, uh, we, we know this from, from the middle of the early part of, of chapter 12, even in the midst of this passage, there's this secret plot going on to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus. Because too many people are believing in Jesus because of the raising of Lazarus. And so it's so fascinating that, that John brings attention to these people. That, that these Gentiles want to have a conversation with Jesus and that they were already partially, they were partially, they were almost there. They were on their way to being true believers. They accepted Yahweh as God. They were there to worship the feast of Passover. This is an incredible truth. John has, all, John has already showed us through the message of Jesus in, in, in chapter 10 that Jesus has a plan for people who are not Jews. Jesus has a plan to rescue non-Jewish people. Jesus will save Gentiles. Do you remember back in chapter 10 when we talked about the idea of flock and fold? Who was the fold? Do you remember? Israel. And the flock is the church. Jesus is giving us this foreshadowing of the church. Remember he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So there are people who are not Jewish that will enter the flock, that will become believers, join the church. We see this prediction in the Old Testament. This is a fascinating place where we see this in 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 41. What's taking place in this passage is Solomon is rededicating the temple to the Lord. In verse 41, he says, Likewise, when a foreigner, this is Solomon speaking, giving his blessing, dedicating this to the Lord. Likewise, when a foreigner, so that's anyone who's not Jewish. The, the, the temple built in Jerusalem. Solomon's giving this blessing of the temple. And he says, likewise, when a foreigner, so we know that these people must be Gentiles who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake. This is exactly what we see in John 12. 
these Greeks coming to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. For they shall hear, I love this text, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand. Listen, the fame of God will be declared among the nations. People can't miss the majestic glory and power of God in this earth. Verse 43, Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. This is a wonderful missions passage. And you got reminded of this even this past Wednesday as we had a missionary come and challenge us to declare the fame of God around the world. But notice, Solomon points out the possibility and even the probability that non-Jews will come to the temple and offer worship to Yahweh. And we see that firsthand in John chapter 12 within the ministry of Christ. So Solomon's concern with his temple is, not, is, is that not only would Jews have the benefits of God, which is one of the problems that we see the, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders in the New Testament. They were alone. They thought they were the only people of God and they had access to God and they would know the blessings of God. The Jewish religious leaders in the New Testament were incredibly exclusive and they were proud and they looked down on Gentiles. But what Solomon's concern his concern is not how important the Jews are. His concern is how important God is. And not that the fame of Judaism would be spread, but that the fame of Yahweh would be spread. And this fame has been spread because, as we've mentioned, this is what's taking place in John chapter 12. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. But if you trace this idea a little bit further, so Solomon, son of David, dedicating the temple to the Lord. It says there will be people who are not Jews who come to the temple to worship. The prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 11, in that day the root of Jesse, which is who? Son of Solomon, son of David. David is Jesse's son. We trace that all the way forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus born through the lineage of David. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, if you understand what's going on in Isaiah 11, it's a passage that points us forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So the, the kingdom that is to come, the earthly kingdom that is to come, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. The nations will inquire of the root of Jesse, that's Jesus Christ, and this salvation, this plan of salvation for the Gentiles that, that Solomon talks about in 1 Kings will ultimately be accomplished so that in the end, in the millennial reign of Christ and following the millennial reign of Christ, all peoples, Jews, and from every tribe and tongue and nation will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is king. So the point in the Old Testament regarding, one of the points of the Old Testament regarding Gentiles is that all people have a future if they believe. You say, well, that was a lot of theology, and you better be really thankful for all that theology. Because are you Jewish? No. So when you hear that all people, every tribe and tongue and nation, can be united to the Father through the Son, your first response should be, praise God for the glorious gospel. That you are a sheep, not of the fold, that he has welcomed into the flock. 
praise God, that he delivers the believing. Notice I didn't just stop at all. I didn't say Jesus delivers all. Do you know why? Because not all will believe. Jesus delivers those who believe. How does this take place? How is this salvation possible? Well, we see that in verse 23 and, verses 23 and 24. So secondly, Jesus died to bring life. All right, so just make sure we understand what happens in the passage. Greeks come to Jesus, or Greeks come to the disciples. They say, we want to talk to Jesus. So Philip and Andrew, who, by the way, were, uh, they both had Greek names, so that might be why the Greeks approached them. They came to Philip, and Philip came to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came to Jesus. Now, what we don't actually see very clearly in the passage, what we're not sure takes place is that the Greeks ever actually have the conversation. I think that they do. That's, that's debated here, whether it was just Philip and Andrew who came to Jesus, and Jesus answered them, or whether it was the Greeks and Philip and Andrew. I tend to think it was all of them. Okay. Anyway, that's not important. That's just the detail. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, why is this so significant? If, and I know you have, I'm, so I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. You've been paying really close attention every Sunday in the book of John. Why is it so important that Jesus says this? Because up until now, every time he mentions the hour, it has not come. Right? We've already seen this in chapter 2 when he transforms the water into wine, and he says to his mother, my hour's not come in chapter 7, the hour's not come in chapter 8, the hour's not yet come. And to, these, to his disciples, sparked by these Greeks who want to have a conversation, Jesus says the hour has come. Time's here. And the hour had come, that time had come, because we're days before the Son of Man will be lifted up and glorified through his death. And he makes this, um, Jesus makes this statement in verse 24. He uses, he uses an agrarian or a planting, a harvesting uh, analogy in verse 24. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so he uses this farming illustration to make a specific point. Wheat, grain, the wheat when it is cut off from the stalk and planted in the ground, it germinates and that results in the growth. And so Jesus uses this concept to teach what, to very subtly teach what's important and what accomplishes this salvation. Death accomplishes the flourishing of the harvest. It's true in farming, and it's true in spiritual salvation. You see this? Verse 25, whoever loses his life. Now, before we get to verse 25, you heard this terminology very recently. Do you remember when you heard this terminology of the grain dying, and from the grain dying becomes life? Last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat or of some other grain. Paul uses the same illustration Jesus does. Falls in the earth, dead, and from, that die, from, from the death of that wheat, we have the harvest. Do you see what Jesus is saying? From his death is the flourishing of life. So Christ makes this statement of ultimately how will he, he will be glorified because notice what he says he doesn't say he doesn't say the hour has come for me to die he says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified so how is he glorified he's glorified through the death which is such a counterintuitive concept this is what's so confusing to the disciples in the chapters that we'll come to in chapter in 13 and 14 and 15 when they're in the upper room Jesus is talking about leaving he's talking about dying and they're like how can you do this how can you succeed as Messiah and die? Because there's no glory in death from their perspective. Inseparably woven into the glory of, his, of the living Christ is his horrendous death on the cross. Christ being lifted up on the cross accomplishes your life and it accomplishes his great worship. So it's important to understand what Jesus means about dying and living, this illustration that we see in verse 23 and 24, before we move on. Because he's about to, pl he's about to apply this, this concept of death and life very specifically. So he predicts subtly, yes, I mean, we know now because we know what's going to happen. But subtly, he predicts his death and life and what is accomplished through his death and life. But then he applies this idea of death and life to discipleship and following Christ. So, Jesus delivers the believing. Jesus died to bring life. And thirdly, Jesus deserves all of our living. Jesus deserves all of our living. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So let's just begin to break down these verses. Whoever loves his life loses it. So Jesus is teaching the disciples there are absolutely people around. This is probably not a private conversation. Just, just remember how many people are around Jesus all the time now. They're, they're, they're coming to him in droves. Ever since the resurrection of Lazarus, he is the main item. And so there are always people around Jesus Christ now. And so as he's saying these things, people are hearing, whoever loves his life loses it. That's a way of saying, if you consider yourself too important... You're not likely to die to yourself. And whoever hates his life, contrast, in this world will keep it for eternal life. So now this idea of, of, of 
the physical life and death is being applied spiritually. Not just physically, but it's also being applied spiritually. So if you love your life, if you love everything about it, you love yourself, you love what's good about you, what you think's good about you because there's none good. You love your gifts, you love your possessions, you are more likely to hold on to them too tightly. And if you hold on to them too tightly, you are less likely to give them up to Jesus Christ. So it's really basic logic that Jesus is presenting to us. Whoever hates his life, now this word hate doesn't mean loathe or despise like you and I tend to. Sometimes in the New Testament, when you read hate, that is what it means. Or in the scriptures, when you read hate, that is what it means. But this, act, this word actually has the idea of contrast, comparatively. Respecting one and disrespecting the other. Regarding one and not regarding the other. So if you regard your life as less important, you will keep your life for eternal life. If you consider yourself as dead, dying to yourself, giving of yourself, sacrificing yourself, you are more likely to believe in the one who died for you and give all for him. So this is the premise of discipleship. Verse 25 is a premise of discipleship. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to give everything. You have to be willing to give everything. Because what happens when he takes you through times in your life that are really challenging, that take things away from you? Some of you have lost a child. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. Some of you have lost a job. It's, really, it's so hard. Some of you have lost a career. Some of you have lost a spouse. What happens in those times in your following Christ where truly this idea of sacrifice as a disciple is so brought to life, it's so difficult, that's what it means to be a disciple. I guess I have to give now. I can't hold on to this. This is too important. That's what it means to be a disciple. You give. What are you not willing to give? What's that thing in your heart right now that at the concept of loss, it just stings too much and you don't want to think about it? I have mine. I have mine. Is Jesus your primary love? Listen, Jesus can ask for this. Jesus can ask for this kind of following. He's the only one who can, really. Do you know why? Because days after this, he'd take your sin, he'd pay your penalty, he'd experience your suffering, he would take your wrath, and he would take mine. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. We, we saw this in John chapter 10 as well. What is instinctive to those who are truly in Christ. They follow. What is 
instinctive to those who are truly sheep. They know the voice. And they do what the voice says. They go where the voice says they should go. They obey the voice. They follow. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Now this is a, this is a statement of both sacrifice and of comfort. There I am. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If I go here, my servant goes here. If I experience this, my servant experiences this. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now listen, and some of you know this very, very deeply. There will be times to follow Jesus takes you down roads you would not have chosen for yourself. Paths with pains that you did not anticipate. Imagine. I've had mine. But do you remember Hebrews 11? Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Do you know why you can look to him? Because he went before. That word means pioneer. He pioneered the Christian faith. He walked the path before you did. See, I'm going through this kind of pain. Jesus walked through that path of pain. This hurts, this rejection, this loneliness, this struggle. And every step of struggle, every path of pain, where Jesus is, there is his servant. You're never alone through those steps. You're never alone through those paths. Are you following? Are you following? Or do you have your own ways, your own desires, your own priorities, your own loves, and you're creating the path that you think is right. And that's the one you're following. Believers will get off the path. Believers will get distracted. But believers come back. They follow. Because they know the voice. They listen. They acknowledge that He who gave Everything for them is worth everything that we can give in return. Jesus' death accomplishing our eternal life causes me to die daily in my life. This is what Paul says, I die daily, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The primary fundamental change that takes place when you are converted is that you stop living for yourself. Is that I stop living for myself. And sometimes we think it's just the big ways. Well, at least I'm not sinning like that. At least I'm not, you know, backsliding. At least I'm not doing the things that you think and we think are really bad. When we all know someone who's, they've fallen away from the faith, at least I'm not like that. But you'll blow up at your kids when they get in front of the television. 
You'll snap at your wife because you're misunderstood. People will come into churches and divide them because their way is the only way. Death to self impacts every decision in our life. Every single one. This past week we celebrated an important day in church history. Friday, April 9th. I'm not sure how many of you knew it. We celebrate the death of one of the most important men in not only the 19th century, but in my opinion, all of Christian history. Because he left us a model, a blueprint for self-sacrifice. In the 1930s, a young scholar began a lecture circuit through Germany entitled The Church and the Jewish Question. It was intended to oppose Nazi ideology and give honor and respect to Jewish people. He was involved in a secret society of Germans who would help Jews escape out of the country. He would establish underground seminaries all through Europe. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was largely protected through most of World War II because he was a noted scholar, and the Germans respected scholarship. But in 1942, he was imprisoned for his outspoken rejection of Nazism and its anti-Christian foundation. In 1945, the Nazi regime was falling, was fallen. But just before it completely collapsed, Bonhoeffer and others who were imprisoned were falsely accused of being involved in a secret plot to assassinate Hitler. Each of them were pulled from prison and hanged. By becoming a martyr, he lived out the most, possibly the most famous statement he ever made. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Here was a man who did die. You and I may not likely be faced with that reality, but here is something that is certain. If we're not willing to die to ourselves and give of ourselves in the remedial matters of life, we will certainly not die to ourselves in matters of Christian life and death. And I, I propose to you, the reason that is, is because we don't understand two things. First of all, what Jesus calls salvation at the very outset. Give everything. You're mine now. You're, you're a disciple of Jesus. You follow me. And secondly, because we don't understand the true sufferings of Jesus Christ. The true sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because if we understood all of His loss for the immensity of our gain, if we understood the horrible nature of the wrath so that you may experience the beauty and the goodness of His grace, 
if we really understood his insurmountable emotional grief when his father turned his back on him on the cross, if we really understood the weight of sin in Galatians 3, becoming the curse for us, you get bummed out, and you should, and frustrated, and you should, when you fail sinfully. We do. That's guilt. Can you imagine the weight and the oppression of all the sins of all who would ever believe? And if we understood His willingness to experience all of this in the submission to His Father and the final payment for the forgiveness of sins. What keeps us from giving of ourselves? 